Welcome to Lost Without Japan, a travel podcast about the life-changing experiences of exploring Japan and those moments we would be lost without. For your listening pleasure, allow me to introduce your very own Kanko Gaido, Michael. Welcome to a special Lost Without Moments bonus interview episode of the Lost Without Japan podcast. Our bi-weekly podcast is focused on getting you to Japan for your first visit or to make the next adventure to Japan even better than your last. Today's special interview episode is with CJ, and this is your director of travel for TKIC Studio Productions, coming to you with positive thoughts and excitement for your next journey to Japan in his own return once again in summer 2024. I'd like to thank you all for giving me a bit of your time today, and I truly hope this podcast finds you in a good place, or the on the path to a better one, no matter how it may seem at this moment. My belief is that we can all use a beacon like this one in our lives to help guide us during these times, and my hope is that Japan, along with this show, will become that for you. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you're returning Lost Without Listener, thank you again for your time and returning once more. Now, CJ, who we're going to be talking to today, has resided in Japan since 2017 and really caught my attention because I feel that your account, tforest.travel on Instagram, has a lot in common with the show, and that is bringing attention to areas of Japan that don't normally get it. And I, that's just so, so cool. Um, I truly feel fortunate to have CJ join us and to discuss what it's like to live in Japan and really be immersed in it, all while, you know, adding on that discussion of her amazing Instagram account as well. Welcome, CJ. Mm, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for this interview. We were just saying before we even started, we were like, we've been looking forward to this. We're like <laughs> messaging yeah. back and forth. We're ready to go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time for our listeners by joining us on today's episode and sharing a bit about you and your time in Japan. Uh, but before we get going today, where can listeners go to ask you questions? I know that you have your Instagram account, but you also have kind of like a travel itinerary and other things that are going on, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? I still think the best way to get a hold of me would be on Instagram at tforest.travel. You can look in my store highlights for links for the itinerary that I post there as well. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, now we get into the fun stuff, CJ. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> get you a little bit of an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself and kind of like what led you to like your interest of sharing all that you do with your Instagram account in Japan, besides just being in the coolest country in the whole wide world? <laughs> so I actually first started it as a way to keep friends and family up to date with what I was doing in Japan. So I'm from Newfoundland, Canada. It's quite a rural area and there's a 12.5 hour time difference. So chatting regularly can be tough. <laughs> and I use Instagram as a kind of open diary about stuff I've been doing. And eventually it just kind of turned into, I want to show the whole world all these amazing things about Japan. Good as reason as any, and it is 
so well done. Uh, so well done. Just everything that you have, like stories wise. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to speak a little bit about kind of like your passions within Japan. Have you always had an interest in Japan? And if you did, what was it that really first attracted you to it? So I haven't actually always had an interest in Japan, though I've always been interested in travel and language. Um, I got interested in Japan because my friend in university introduced me to anime, which got me interested in the language. So ultimately, the Japanese language class I took in uni led me to Japan. And when I moved here, it was my first time ever in Japan. I just really fell in love with everything here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I have a anime recommendation for later for oh, you yes, as well. You. <laughs> watching something right now. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Cool. You may have already seen it. I might be delayed, but uh, but how did you end up preparing for your move to Japan? Was it, did you do language clubs, events? What did you do prior to coming? So my Japanese teacher in uni introduced me to the teacher dispatch company that I ended up working for in Japan. So to beef up my resume before going, because I was super determined to get into this company and work. Um, I started the first Japanese culture club at my university with my teacher and international Japanese students. And we hosted events for hundreds of people interested in Japanese culture, but it was really basic stuff like origami and Japanese movie nights, but it's still really fun. So as for preparing with language, I did take the two very basic language courses that my university offered. And I took the mid diploma. So by the time I went to Japan two years later, I'd forgotten quite a bit of it, <laughs> but I did try to remember some uh, basic words. And once I was immersed here, everything just kind of came back. It's lucky because I'm not great at studying, but if I'm in a place, I can kind of take it in a lot better. <laughs> Holding out the hope that that's the case for me, too. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> finally get there. <laughs> How was your time teaching English in Japan? It was fantastic. I was really blessed with being placed in a great junior high school and a great location, which was Hamamatsu in Shizuoka. And I had been tutoring English as a second language throughout university as a part-time job, so I had no trouble transitioning to the classroom. And my students were so kind and really genki, really happy. <laughs> I joined after-school club activities often, especially the art club. I also volunteered at the local library to read English books to young kids, which my supervisor at the Board of Education organized with the library staff. So all in all, it was very easy for me to transition to that kind of teaching position as an assistant language teacher. So I think I'm lucky to have that background already. But in general, I just had a really, really awesome time and I enjoyed it wholeheartedly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Beyond even teaching, when I was looking through your account, <clears throat> so much fun to look at. But how did you end up getting into working as a model in Japan? That's, you know, usually the English teaching. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, after I moved to Tokyo, I ended up being scouted on Instagram. And I'm not a professional model. I'm only like five foot five. So uh, I can't do the professional stuff. But the offices that I work for are maybe a little bit different than you might imagine in the West, so I can belong to multiple offices. Therefore, after I got scouted, I ended up applying to a couple more talent agencies just so I could get more work, and I just kind of started from there. That's awesome. 
and it's nice like to have something else mm, yeah it's super fun very interesting <laughs> one of the things that i feel you're qualified to speak to on many different levels are some of the benefits and struggles that come with living in japan especially for the time that you have <laughs> what can you tell us about some of your experiences with this I'll start maybe with the struggles just so we can move up to a higher note. <laughs> I really do think the struggles depend on the person. Uh, I'm really easygoing. So if something seems strange to me or seems annoying, I'm aware that I'm in a country that I didn't grow up in. So really, it's not a big deal. Everything will get sorted in the end. It's fine. <laughs> so I think for me, the biggest struggle is just kanji <laughs> when it comes to like a phone contract or buying a vehicle. A vehicle or something similar, because I don't use the words often enough for it to be familiar. It can be daunting and time-consuming to figure everything out. <laughs> and also, sometimes if I go to a bank or a store, sometimes the clerk will seem to panic a bit if they see me approach them because they think we won't be able to communicate. And then they don't speak Japanese normally and try to use like gestures and then like just sounds grunts <laughs> and it makes it really hard even if i'm speaking japanese just fine to them it's a little irritating but i think they're more worried about not being able to perform well rather than the fact that i'm a foreigner but it can be a little off-putting sometimes and another thing is the work culture so my teaching position was fine any any extra work i put in was just because i really loved it but I felt bad that a lot of my coworkers were definitely overworked. I know for teaching in Japan, my friend now, one of the teachers I worked with, she was a young teacher just starting out. She had six classes every single day. She had club on the weekends, and she only had half a Sunday off every week. And on top of that, her first year of teaching, she only had five whole days off the whole year. So really tough. <laughs> And um, now I feel bad for my partner because he works for a great company, but sometimes he still feels the need to adhere to Japanese overtime culture. So it's kind of sad. <laughs> and sorry, I have so much to say about this. <laughs> I'd love to continue hearing about this as long as you want to keep talking about it. So, Sure, sure. I guess I've met some people in Japan who've been here for 10 years, but they still can't count to 10 just because language is not their forte. That's just the way that, you know, people have their own strengths and weaknesses, and that can be a big struggle for some people. And uh, there are also people who get really frustrated at the overcomplicated way paperwork is done or that a restaurant menu isn't as straightforward as they think it should be. So I think the struggles really depend on your personal constitution. But the benefits are like endless. <laughs> so. Coming from a really rural place, I can say that Japan just, there's always so much to do. There's always something on the go, whether it's uh, going to a museum, just going shopping in Tokyo is really fun, uh, going to scenic spots, the nature is really beautiful, there are uh, festivals, events, markets, always something to do. And also, since my hometown has really bad weather all the time, it's nice to be in Japan and actually enjoy the different seasons. And all the nature. Convenience stores are actually convenient. And there's next day delivery, which is unheard of in Newfoundland. <laughs> so I feel really at peace here as well. I think there's a politeness kind of ingrained in the culture that, for example, makes a train commute generally pretty quiet. 
So I really like that kind of atmosphere. Lots of benefits and yeah, any downsides really just depend on the person and your attitude towards living in a different country, I think. Love it. I love it. Love it. If you were going to recommend something for a first time visitor to do, let's say it's they've landed, it's the day after they wake up and they're ready to start their day in Japan. What recommendation would you give for them to get going with? Such a good question. (laughs) I'd say take it easy when you step out of your hotel or wherever you're staying. Just take a slow walk or sit at a nearby cafe and take in your surroundings. Do some people watching, take in the weather, the architecture that might be different from where you're from, and let it all sink in. Because I think it can be overwhelming in Japan because there's so much to offer. You don't want to miss out on anything. (laughs) But no matter what, you're going to enjoy your trip. So don't worry about taking a moment to rest and just really see what's around you before you start your day. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, We're going to move on a little bit to your Instagram account because it has so much in it. (laughs) I must say, like I said earlier, I am so jealous of anyone who's beaten me to actually living in Japan. And one one thing I enjoy about your account is really the length of time that it covers. I mean, you have over 300 weeks of posts. No, not all of those are Japan, but you know, you, you you've commented so much about like living the best life you possibly could and can. And I truly get that from just looking at everything for you and how you look at those opportunities presented to you. And it's just amazing to kind of reflect on that idea all the time and see where those moments and things, you know, took you and where they stand out. Do you have any of those moments uh, from your time in Japan or leading up to it that kind of are closer to your heart than others? Oh, so many, I'm sure. Really anything to do with my students, of course. Uh, I worked at the same junior high school for three years. So I really got to know uh, the students there and and in the area and their little notes, gifts and graduation letters still make me tear up. (laughs) And a lot of them are turning 20 this year and have like asked me to join them for a drink. And it's crazy because I met them when they were just 12 or 13 years old. (laughs) So anything to do with them just really tugs at my heartstrings. I guess also any cultural experiences like festivals are always fun, especially the first fireworks show that I saw. Fireworks in Newfoundland are really crappy, if it's okay to say that. Of course, of course. (laughs) So seeing a fireworks festival, even in the rural area that I was in, just be so incredible. It still like makes my heart beat faster because I can remember just the vibration of the fireworks uh, as I was sitting on the ground looking up at this beautiful, beautiful show. And I saw it just a few days after arriving in Japan. So it really set the tone for this is going to be a really cool experience. And I guess another one would be climbing Mount Fuji. A lot of Japanese people say Mount Fuji is just for looking at. You don't have to climb it. And now I kind of agree because I did not enjoy that climb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was really active at the time, but I guess I'm more into hiking than mountain climbing. And I got mountain sickness at the top. I thought I was dying. I had no idea how I was going to get off of it. I was like, they're going to have to get like a helicopter up here. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. <laughs> but my, uh, my partner and I, we climbed overnight so we could see the sunrise. 
And because I was so sick, we couldn't actually make it up the very last leg to get to the summit. So now I feel like I have to go again so I can get to the top. But anyways, we were actually really lucky because we had a stunning view of the sunrise. While apparently at the summit, it was too cloudy to see anything. So even though I felt bad about not being able to make it to the top, it just worked out really well for us that we could see what we were able to. So that's a really good memory, despite all the, <laughs> all the hardship. <laughs> I love it all. And one thing that is very clear that you've made a ton of connections with your students. Uh, could you speak to, to that in some regard of what it was like uh, in just teaching in Japan and being able to make those connections? I really love teaching and I love kids, even at like a teenage level. <laughs> so I, I was never sure if I wanted to go and get a teaching degree when I was in university, um, but I was always interested in teaching English as a second language. And I always thought, you know, junior high school level, these kids are really impressionable. I think it would be a great age to teach, even if they can be a little uh, crazy at times. <laughs> but all kids can. So I just found it really rewarding. But I think my background in teaching helped me transition to teaching in Japan quite well. So for me, it was easy, fun, rewarding. and. As for like the connection and just general vibe of teaching in Japan, I, I learned a lot just by seeing my students' growth and determination. And you know how in the West it can be kind of like lame to be bad at something? <laughs> my students always seem to take it as a sign to just try again. You just keep working at it. It's okay to be bad at something at first, and it makes you really cool if you keep practicing to be better. So that really helped me stop worrying about what others might be thinking of me. I started painting again. I started drawing again. I started dance again. I joined a school sports festival where I had to learn a traditional dance, and I wouldn't have been able to do that without my students. So it was all in all very rewarding and just beautiful experience. I enjoyed it so much. Love it. You really need to make a book. I truly feel like at some point in your life, <laughs> You could even do it with all of your posts. Uh, I love how <laughs> open you are with sharing important moments in your life, including getting married to your partner, John. What mm -hmm. was the whole process like it for you to end up getting married in Japan? So first of all, the book idea. That's super interesting. I'm going to have to think about it. <laughs> and as for getting married, it was, it was really easy. We got married in 2020, actually. So a bit of a long story, but my partner moved to Tokyo when he changed jobs and I wanted to do one more year of teaching before I followed him. So the year I moved, I thought I could get into tourism, but I ended up in Tokyo and all my interviews were ending with like, oh, we're bankrupt now <laughs> because tourism is tanking because of COVID. So if I wanted to stay in Japan... I needed a visa, so we pushed our marriage plans ahead, and I got married. For love, but also for a visa. <laughs> so, the actual process was quite simple. We just went to City Hall, filled out a form, and then the lady who was helping us fill out the form was like, okay, you're done. And we were like, oh, that's it? We're married? <laughs> just had to sign our names, and that was it. We got a certificate, and... We didn't actually have a wedding ceremony, uh, but we did end up later having a small party or a small dinner with friends. And when we visited John's family in New Zealand, we had another dinner there. So 
we didn't actually have a, a wedding in Japan, but I've been to a few Japanese friends' weddings, and they're very similar these days to Western weddings. Some of the differences that stood out was like it's okay to wear black, <laughs> and it's normal for the married couple to like invite their boss to give them a speech, which seems a little odd compared to Western weddings, but mostly similar. Instead of a gift, you give gift money, which takes the pressure off. It's a pretty big chunk of change, but <laughs> but it does take the pressure off. So, well, I would have loved to experience a proper wedding. It's just too hard to get family from two different countries, all in Japan. It was quite far from both where John grew up in New Zealand and from Newfoundland, where I am, to get everybody over. So we're just planning on doing a little dinner when I eventually make it back to Newfoundland as well. Love it. I love it. I have a friend that I'm going to have on the show at some point in time to talk about his time in Japan working illegally as a minister at a wedding hall. He was like the English, you know, oh, speaking person. Oh, yeah. Yes. It's, I, I love hearing about it every single time he, he tells me about it. So, you know. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, please. I can't wait to listen to that, too. <laughs> um, the, the goal of my show is to help people see what it could be like in Japan uh, should you visit or live there one day. Could you speak to what it's like to having a young family in Japan? Mm, I think I have lots to talk about with this, so sorry in advance again. I'm really chatty. <laughs> if you don't have any family in Japan, I think it's hard to raise a baby on your own. It's so tiring. <laughs> and if you don't have any friends with kids, it can be a bit lonely because your schedule just isn't as flexible anymore. But I think that's just in general, not just in Japan. We're lucky that we both speak and read Japanese, so we could take advantage of a lot of the things the city offers for young families, like organize playdates at nurseries and free supplies and stuff like that. The language was something we were a bit worried about, would be confusing for a baby, English at home, Japanese, or English and Chinese at home, and then Japanese out in, out in the world. <laughs> But she's doing amazing. She knows the words for the same thing in English, Japanese, Chinese, and sign language. So it <laughs> seems to be a strong point of hers. So we're, we're lucky with that. But in general, in, in Shibuya, where we used to live, uh, everything was so busy. It w just wasn't the kind of environment we wanted to raise our baby in. And our one-room apartment was just way too small for three of us. We were also worried about getting around easily with a baby car when all the tourists came back. Because getting on the train when it's busy is a bit tough at times. And then once all the tourists come, it would be just super difficult. So we ended up moving. Now we live on the very outskirts of Tokyo. We're actually right on the border of Tokyo and Kanagawa. It's way more chill. <laughs> We've made a lot of friends in the neighborhood. So if I go for a walk with my baby, we usually stop to talk with like five to ten local grannies and grandpas. It feels really homey now. So I think... Yeah, it's just a really nice place, I think, especially in the rural areas, from our personal preferences to raise a baby in Japan like this. However, as we both worked in the education system in Japan, we don't think it's a good fit for our family. Maybe elementary school would be okay, but the workload and pressure to perform well is just way too much for students, I think. It readies these students for a similar workplace in the future, but that's not really the kind of life that we want for our baby. Every country has its ups and downs, obviously, but we'll end up moving to New Zealand eventually to be with my partner's family. 
just his family is very eagerly waiting for us to come back permanently, so we'll end up moving there. <laughs> but all in all, I think right now everything is really wonderful raising a child here. I spent some time prior to our interview looking through your account and was excited to see the art you've made and shared that, you know, continues even to one of your posts recent. I think it's the last one that you've done, not story wise, but it was ma- making a, an amazing glass mug at a studio in Japan. Oh, yes. You know, it's, that's one mm. that put my, my mug that I made in Japan to shame, I must say. But um, what could you <laughs> well, tell sure, us uh, you know, <laughs> about that experience? <laughs> Thank you, first of all. <laughs> Uh, it was a really quaint experience. We went to uh, Otaru in Hokkaido to do it and actually went when I was seven months pregnant. <laughs> I had never done anything like making a mug like this before, so I was a little worried I was going to mess it up, but it went very smoothly in the end. My partner had found stuff for us to do on the trip, so I just sat back and enjoyed it all. It was great to visit Otaru in the winter because it reminded me of home. Feeling the cool air in the studio as we forged a mug was really refreshing. And uh, I was really sick throughout my entire pregnancy, unfortunately. And I still wanted to go on a last couple's trip with my partner. And I was quite convinced I wasn't going to actually survive the pregnancy. So I wanted to do a last trip. (laughs) Sorry, it's so grim. Uh, (laughs) But I wanted to do a last trip. And it was in a place that reminded me of home. And luckily, I'm fine. The baby's fine. The mugs look fantastic. We only use them for special drinks now. So it was a good experience that when I think about it, uh, I could do something really cool in Japan that I'd never done before, but still feel a sense of kind of nostalgia and uh, a sense of peace from being in a place that reminded me of home. So that's definitely going to be one of the memories that I hold on to for a long time. Love it. Then having that like actual physical item for after the move to kind of hold and you feel that connection to that's no, that's huge. That's huge. Very true. Very true. One thing about myself and the show is definitely about trying to find great food in Japan. What are some of your favorites, and do you have any locations you wouldn't mind sharing to our audience? <laughs> if you don't want to share them, <laughs> totally understand as well. No, no some- I'll share them, <laughs> but um, I'm sorry to say, but I'm not much of a foodie. They'll always try anything once, absolutely. The thing is, I don't like fish, <laughs> and I live in Japan. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, cra- crab is okay, but every time I try it, I just don't like it, so I don't eat fish, I don't eat sushi, but when I think of a food I really enjoy, maybe it's not a traditional Japanese food, but in Yokohama's Chinatown, there are a lot of stalls that sell lotus seed buns or white momo buns. It looks like a peach, and they have a delicious filling that I could just eat like by the spoonful if I had the chance, and if it were like socially acceptable. <laughs> so. Uh, I recommend you try one of those if you go to Yokohama Chinatown. My son and I were joking on our last trip that we had so much fun just at convenience stores. So wouldn't consider ourselves foodie, but just the fact that you can find so many great things, no matter like regardless of price. And then 
the fact that like when I was there, it's not really sold as organic, but everything is coming from, for the most part, like local farmers, local area and things. Yes, and it that's makes right. such a huge difference <laughs> for everything that you're having. It's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything just tastes really fresh and good. Uh, it's where we do a lot of the shopping even to feed our baby just because it seems like, you know, good, healthy food. Yeah, super convenient. I'm super happy that uh, we live in a place where that's all available. And when I moved to New Zealand, I'm like dreading having to go to a regular grocery store all the time. Now, one thing that really caught my eye, because it's something I want to do myself, like talk about animes. There's Mm -hmm. plenty of animes having to deal with scooters and like going around to to Fuji and to other places. (laughs) Uh, So many amazing things. Let me tell you, it's uh, can you tell me? about what it's like having a scooter, getting the scooter, traversing, Mm -hmm. exploring Japan in this way, because it looks like you're having so much fun every single time I see a picture of you. I am. Absolutely. (laughs) So I just bought it this year. I bought it secondhand, but it only had like just a couple thousand miles on it. Basically brand new. It was my first time ever owning a vehicle, so I'm very proud of it. (laughs) And I did all the paperwork and stuff myself, too, which was a very hard to do, but very rewarding because I got such a nice scooter out of it. I did a lot of research about where I was going to buy it. I wanted a certain color, so I looked like all over for the, the perfect scooter for me to get. And having a vehicle is it's really convenient. Uh, it's convenient for short distances. Uh, but if I'm going longer distances, sometimes the train is actually quicker, especially with traffic. Because it's only 50cc, I can't go on the highways, but because of that, I get to see all the residential areas and rural countryside when I drive. So a lot of the time, even if the train is quicker, I'll choose to go on my scooter just because it's more fun and I can see just a really beautiful landscape no matter where I go. How did you end up finding your scooter? Like what sites and things did you use to go about doing that? Like eBay Japan? (laughs) (laughs) So I was actually having a look on Merukari, which is a kind of a buy and sell app um, for buying and selling used things in Japan. But I don't know enough about vehicles. So every time I looked at a scooter, I was like, hmm, is this actually like good? Do I have to do work on it? I wasn't sure. So I ended up going to a used motorcycle dealership that which uh, is nearby my house and i forget the name of it now maybe it's honda go or something similar like that but i ended up going to the actual dealership and we had a look on their website for any scooters that were available and i found one that i liked in my price range and they had it First shipped to the store so I could have a look at everything and then it was shipped to my house after they finished the inspection for it. As for my license, I just got my Canadian license transferred to a Japanese one, so I only had to do a small interview. I didn't have to retake the test, which was which is great because if you have to do a a full like driving license in Japan, it's very time consuming and very expensive. <laughs> So I'm lucky that mine was just able to transfer over. After talking about your scooter and getting around and seeing some places, what are some of your favorite locations in Japan? So I actually post about them all the time. So maybe you'll get sick of me, but (laughs) 
I really love anywhere in Shizuoka, really. It has really great rural spots and mountain roads. The sea is really pretty. The Izu coast is lovely. I also love Hamamatsu Shizuoka because that's where I first lived in Japan. It's a huge city, but the city center is quite small and the rest of the land is residential, so it really feels like the countryside while having the convenience of a city. It was a great first place to live. It's also really sunny there, <laughs> so it's easy to plan outdoor trips in advance because the weather is usually cooperative. And another place I really love is Atami. It's on the Izu coast of Shizuoka. The town is really retro. It's on a steep hill, which is nostalgic to where I'm from, my hometown. It has the mountains and the sea, so it has everything I need. So I'd have to say that anywhere in Shizuoka is my favorite place in Japan. Excellent. And, I, and at least for our audience, I don't think anyone's going to get tired of it because <laughs> it really is just like that focus of like getting outside of necessarily like main areas that you might get when you come through. Mm -hmm. And I, and every single post that I was looking through just made me jealous. It's, like, <laughs> it's, a, it's an add to where I need to go. So yes, yeah, and I'm sure you'll get to experience it. <laughs> If it has, uh, how has living in Japan changed your view of the world? Oh, I wonder. So I kind of moved here during my formative years. <laughs> so I think I grew and developed my worldviews while living here. I guess I was more interested in always being on the go and always being on, like always being busy. But I think in Japan, I also learned to be still sometimes. So. Maybe I realize now that the world moves too fast a lot of the time, and a lot of people are always looking for the next best thing. But sometimes it's okay to just, you know, take a rest and take in your surroundings. So I think before when I thought it was always good to be on the go and the world moves fast, I'm going to move fast too. Now I kind of think that the world's moving so fast. Maybe it's good to be a bit still. <laughs> Could not agree more. Part of the time, whenever I visit, I like to give myself at least like five days in Hiroshima, which is uh, I have a couple friends that are out in the mm -hmm. area and it's my favorite place to go and just have that where you just kick back and you're just like not worried about anything. You're not running to go anywhere. You're just yes. hanging out, having some food, taking a stroll, sleeping in. Uh, yes. And it is yeah. fabulous. Yeah, that's a great way to experience a trip. You always need some rest days in there. What advice would you give to anyone contemplating starting their own Instagram account in Japan? On the technical side of things, I think there are a lot of things you can do to please the algorithm if your aim is to grow fast and get things out to a big audience. But otherwise, I wouldn't let it stress you out. Uh, I started by using mine as a diary and fingers crossed we'll have Instagram for a long time so I can keep looking back at everything for many years to come. <laughs> But my advice, I guess, would be to focus on what you like to talk about and what you like to share, what you want people to know about, because then it won't get overwhelming and it won't get boring either. So this last part we're going to go into, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your first timers itinerary for Japan that you have available through your site that gives kind of a 12 day itinerary for people to follow. What can you tell us about this? And I'm. I've already included it in our show notes that we'll have. Mm, thank you so much. This is your, your, your turn to kind of, you know, share this. Sure. Uh, what, what is it all about? So I've done this route uh, quite a few times, just taking friends and family around Japan. 
and I just kind of felt like compiling it all together. I like art and design, so I had fun putting the itinerary together in Canva. I just wanted to share a concise uh, route for people to take when they first come to Japan, because it can be overwhelming when there's so much to do. And this is actually known, I think, as a Japan's golden route. So it's the route that a lot of first-timers take, but mine is a bit different in that I've done this route before, and it does not go to Hakone, which is one of the very popular spots on this itinerary. I've actually never been to Hakone, so I didn't feel comfortable putting that in my guide. <laughs> I chose some places in Chizuoka instead, which I was very familiar with after living there for three years. So that's kind of how that all came about. And I'd also like to share that I'm planning on releasing a kind of guide for cherry blossom viewing in Japan. And just kind of highlighting some key spots in each prefecture, because this might not be known by so many people, but cherry blossoms can actually be viewed from January onwards, depending on what prefecture you're in. So I kind of want to share all of the wonderful places that you can do, and you can even chase the cherry blossoms as they bloom like throughout Japan, which is something that my partner and I did during one of our Golden Week trips. We just kind of started in Tokyo and then moved up to Hokkaido following the bloom of the cherry blossoms. So I'd really like to share that in some point. It'll probably be released early next year. Outstanding. Outstanding. You've already kind of gone into this a little bit, but what are your goals for 2024 and beyond? <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> I guess I want to visit more off the beaten path places in Japan. I have my scooter now, so I want to make use of that. And I want to share them with everyone because over-tourism is a huge issue in Japan, um, with everyone always doing that golden route when they come. But there's so much more that Japan has to offer, so I want to find those places and share them with everyone. I guess on a more personal side, I want to, I want to write more, paint more, do some culture classes at the community center. I've kind of been on pause as I've recovered from my pregnancy, so now that I'm starting to feel like myself again, I want to go back to doing the fun stuff. <laughs> love it. CJ, it has been my pleasure, truly. I've had so much fun talking with you. Me too. <laughs> but once again, where could listeners of Lost Without Japan find you, support you, and just, you know, get in touch? Uh, you can find me at tforest.travel on Instagram. I have uh, all of my guides and my info in the Instagram stories. So anything you need, it'll be there. Excellent. And this request is going out a quite a bit early uh, for listeners, but I really want to give all of you as much chance as possible to be a part of our show's three-year celebration next summer. So for that reason, I'm going to start requesting audio recordings or written stories that I could include in that episode that you can just share a favorite story from a Japan trip what you're looking forward to most if you've never been before, or just what you've enjoyed about our show. So please email in an audio file or a fax, however you want to get it to me. <laughs> uh, email me at lostwithoutjapan at gmail.com. I truly look forward to celebrating this special event with you, and I can't wait to hear and read what you end up choosing to share with us. So... Thank you, CJ, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking about Japan with you. So thank you so much for the opportunity. 
when you finally get to the point of going back home, I'm going to need to try to have you on again one more time. Just uh, oh, sure thing. You know, to talk talk what it's like at that point, maybe even touch base once you're back home. Yeah, uh, totally. But I had a blast. Would have you on anytime. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I definitely plan on returning to Japan like yearly if I can. So no matter what, it's always part of my life now. Well, on behalf of Lost Without Japan and the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for joining us today for this interview, and we look forward to seeing you on board again for our next regularly scheduled episode as we continue our discussion on Japan, travel, culture, and your Lost Without moments. To everyone out there, oh, ginky day. Stay well, my friends.